You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Now, full disclosure, this is not meant to be taken as a political endorsement or a non-endorsement. Uh, a few years back, I was at a state dinner at the White House. Uh, a state dinner is basically a big event with bells and whistles where another head of state is visiting. After about 15 minutes there, uh, I started thinking to myself, I'm not going to just stand around here and talk to randoms. I'm going to go find some famous people and try to meet them. And so I mingled around a little bit. Uh, I got introduced to a, a couple of folks. Uh, the event starts, lots of bells, lots of whistles, and then it ends. It's probably what you would expect. And as people are starting to leave, I see the vice president of the United States, who at that time was Mike Pence, and he's on the move across the hallway. And he's probably trying to get home. There's a lot of people around him. Seems like his team is kind of huddling around him, and he's, he's not able to stop. And so I think to myself, I know how to do this. He's religious. I'm religious. I'm a pastor. And so I essentially approached the horde of people as they were trying to move the vice president down the hallway. And I say, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Vice President, I'm a pastor. And he literally stops dead in his tracks, like I'm the only one that got him to stop. And he turns around, and I was really shocked. And the first thing I said was, picture? And I held up my phone. <laughs> uh, please don't ever do that. We both laughed at me for a while, and we had a short but good conversation. He was actually a very sincere man uh, and a pleasure to talk with. Now, that's not actually how it usually works. 90% of the time, having the pastor title works the other way. It actually sometimes stunts friendship building. It actually sometimes creates an automatic distance. Said another way, in really formal settings like that, you could say that you are an astrology expert, tarot card reader who breeds rabbits for a living, and a person is going to say, that's awesome. I've never met anyone like you. You're incredible. But in the real world, when we get into reality, when we face people who are being themselves, uh, being a pastor is sometimes met with suspicion or discomfort. There's a lot of baggage attached to this title. Now, of course, this is a real problem. The mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of the church, is to help people to know Jesus, to help people to better understand the love and mercy of God. But if as soon as you start getting to know people or as soon as you introduce yourself to people, if your job automatically makes you a buzzkill or, uh, you know, a turnoff to people, well, deeper friendships, uh, vulnerability, and evil, even, even access to people can become quite complicated. Uh, but the good news this morning is that in the pages of the Bible and in the pages of history, God gets his mission primarily done not through pastors not through apostles, but he primarily gets his work done through you, through ordinary people 
doing ordinary things with Christ-centered intentionality. That is the solution to changing the world with God's love and peace isn't bigger churches. It's not more sensation on Sunday morning. It's not better trained speakers. The solution is that it's primarily on the backs of Christian businesswomen, Christian entrepreneurs, Christian government employees, Christian lawyers, Christian singles, Christian couples, Christian students, that the gospel goes forward. And that's really what this message is all about. God's work is primarily done through ordinary people doing ordinary things with a Christ-centered intentionality. And that's really what the main idea of this passage is this morning. We're going to meet Stephen, who's the first Christian martyr. But he's also a really ordinary guy. He's not a pastor. He's not an apostle. But we'll see that he makes a huge splash. We'll see that ordinary people with God's spirit can do just as much as church leaders with God's spirit. Now, my outline is going to be up on the screen. We'll see really four key moments in Stephen's life, his final moments. Each of them helps us to see a way that we can help people to know Jesus and better understand him. Number one, we'll see his service. We'll see that in the first seven verses. We'll see his words, verses 8, 9, and 10. We'll see his message, which is quite a long chapter, a full chapter. And then finally, we'll see his death. Let's look at our first moment, his service, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, for those of you who are new, we have been studying the book of Acts as a church. The book of Acts essentially gives us a front row seat to seeing the explosive growth of the church, early Christianity, in the first century. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is with his people. He's with his disciples for 40 days, and then the book of Acts tells us that he ascends. And then we saw the Spirit coming in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, descending in power, the Spirit of God, and renewing and rebooting and relaunching God's people. We've seen the Apostle Peter speak with a lot of courage in the face of people who were threatened or confused by the Christian faith. And we've also seen God do extraordinary things through the apostles Peter and John, things like healing a man, things like busting them out of a public prison in the middle of the night, things like dramatically protecting his early church, his infant church, in powerful ways. And we've also seen throughout the book of Acts thus far this little note that the church was marked by a radical unselfishness. Uh, The book of of Acts says that the early church was marked by this self-giving, this radical unselfishness, this generosity. Now, a lot of the religions of the world back then talked about poverty relief and caring for the poor, 
but the early church had a new energy coming out of it that was unheard of at the time. Eventually, Christians would go on to invent hospitals, the university system, poverty relief programs, the idea of human universal rights. Uh, But all they've got thus far here in the book of Acts is this kind of simple benevolence system. It was implemented to kind of care for the people in their ranks. But then notice in verse 1 something happens. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. In other words, there were some very unhappy people in the church with this kind of benevolent system that they had set up. And this is more than a let me speak to the manager moment. Uh, Essentially, you had two groups that were in the church right now. You had those that were living in Jerusalem, who had been born in Jerusalem, and who had become Christians. Uh, We could say Christian Jews from Jerusalem. And then you also had Christian Jews, Jews who had been born outside of Jerusalem. Often they didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke other languages like Greek, for instance. Just like today, there are a lot of people that are born in Israel that are Jews, and there are a lot of people who are born outside of Israel that are Jews. And somehow, the widows of Christian Jews who were from outside of Jerusalem and usually didn't speak Hebrew and who had either moved to Jerusalem to retire there or for some other reason, they were being slighted in this benevolent system. It could have been prejudice. It could have been bias. It could have been that they lived in harder, accessible areas to the church. But there's a big complaint. There's cultural strife in the early church. And so this is a big deal. The entire church gets together And the leaders of the church, these apostles, this this special first century office, basically say that to fix this benevolent system would require them to deprioritize their call to preach and to pray. And so the church needed to appoint leads for this important ministry. And the text continues in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, interestingly enough, probably all of those names are Greek names. Essentially, the whole church Both groups came together under the banner of Jesus, and they picked representatives all from the group that they slighted. Uh, The Christian Jews who had grown up outside of Jerusalem and probably didn't speak Hebrew fluently. That's a message for another day, but notice this is where we first meet Stephen. Stephen's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and he's picked to help kind of fix this entrepreneurial-type benevolent system. And once that happens, the faith continues to spread and multiply in Jerusalem, and a great many of the Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Stephen's service, and I'm I'm presuming he did a good job at leading and fixing the church's benevolent system, shows us the first big way that we can help people to know Jesus and better understand him, and that's through service. Like Jesus... Stephen models 
service. I'm not sure if Stephen had a huge passion or even a skill in food distribution, but he did it anyways. I'm not sure if Stephen wrestled with the pride of feeling like serving others was beneath him, but he did it anyways. I'm positive washing people's feet was beneath the Son of God, but he did it anyways. Uh, the takeaway for us is it's an important truth to remind ourselves that Jesus calls us to service, to do it anyways, to make room in our lives, particularly in the church, to do things that are not necessarily our passion or our thrill, but to do them so that we can maintain the role of servant. It probably felt below him, but he did it anyways because it needed to be done. And once he did, it's interesting that it strengthens the whole church, and the whole church and the gospel continues to spread, and the faith continues to grow. The next moment we'll see is his words in verses 8, 9, and 10. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So this was an extraordinary time in the life of the church. There was a massive outpouring of power and grace from God on his people as he was at work in the world, changing the world, transforming the world. I like to think of Jesus' resurrection like a cannonball into a pool, and the book of Acts, these, these early chapters of Acts, like those initial splashes, those initial high waves. Stephen's just an ordinary guy, but he's filled with grace and power. God is doing amazing things through Stephen to validate his message, to draw attention to Jesus and the gospel. And then finally, there's some pushback. Uh, there's some people that really don't like the message of Jesus. And so they argue back and forth, but as the text says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, that's quite interesting, uh, because the people who he's initially debating here are likely his kind of people. Uh, though he's now a Christian, Stephen's got an outside-of-Jerusalem background. Uh, he's a Jewish Christian who grew up outside of Jerusalem. And these people who belong to this synagogue and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia, they're all outside of Jerusalem kind of people as well. So there was probably a natural gravitation towards Stephen. Uh, he was a little bit like them. This is similar to how perhaps if you're from the south, you tend to gravitate, and it's a little bit easier for you to be friends with people from the south, I think. Or if you're from the north, probably at first a little bit easier to gravitate and be friends with people from the north. There's some cultural similarities. But it's also very dissimilar because he's disagreeing with them sharply. He broke decisively with his culture in some ways. He's now saying that their most sacred site, the temple, that's actually not where God lives and it really isn't necessary anymore. And he's saying that they're ultimately confused about God's ethics. 
He's saying that Jesus is actually the Messiah, that he was killed, but that he was raised to life and resurrection. Now, notice that as he's speaking, his speech is characterized by two things, wisdom and spirit, verse 10. Wisdom meaning that his reasoning, that his answers, they were compelling. They were persuasive and logical. They were clear and concise. And spirit meaning that there was confidence and love and power from God, that God's presence and goodness affected his tone and his sensitivity. But also notice that this all seems to be flowing from verse 8. He was full of grace and power. Now, grace and power on the surface seem like opposites, don't they? On the one hand, a person who's very gracious is a person you would say is compassionate. They're sensitive. They're peaceful. On the other hand, a person who is powerful is forceful. They're forthright. They're direct. And it would seem like on the surface, these two things can't come together. But in Stephen, they do. This is because Stephen had the spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of him, the spirit of the lion and the lamb. And he had a humble boldness as a result. Now, the gospel of Jesus is the only thing that can produce that in a person. If a person thinks at the end of the day, they're living up to God's standards or their standards themselves, their own standards relatively well, they're going to be a pretty bold person. They'll be a pretty confident person. But they're going to struggle with humility, and that's going to come out. On the other hand, if a person is really sensitive and realizes they're not living up to God's standards, they're not even living up to their own standards, and they just kind of live in guilt and shame there's going to be no boldness. There's going to be no risks. They're going to struggle with confidence, and that'll come out. But in the gospel, we find out it tells us that we are helpless sinners. It creates a humility that doesn't go away. And at the same time, it tells us that we are completely accepted and forgiven in Jesus Christ, which creates a boldness that won't go away. It creates both a grace and a power at the same time. And Stephen had this because he had the spirit of Christ, the lion and the lamb, living inside of him. And if you're in Christ this morning, you have that same spirit. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Greater is he who lives in you than he who lives in the world. God uses ordinary people that do ordinary things with gospel intentionality, Christ-centered intentionality to change the world. The text continues, and we see the third moment in Stephen's life, his message. I won't read all of that. We normally, regularly would never do that at King's Church. I encourage you to read the chapter, but let's look at the beginning, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel, innocent, confident, filled with God's peace. Chapter 8, verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? So Stephen's been winning every debate, every discussion about major life issues around God and faith, and he's been doing that with a humble boldness. His verbals and his nonverbals are right on, and so the other team starts working behind the scenes to over-exaggerate, to twist the truth, to stir people up, and essentially to character assassinate Stephen. And they bring him before this religious council, and there's going to be quite the speech. Now, worldly wisdom would say, don't waste your time on people committed to misunderstanding you, but Stephen's not about Stephen, and he's about to give the longest message or speech in the book of Acts. The high priest is likely the same high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus just a few months ago, and he asks him, are these things so? Essentially, he's asking him two things. Are you against the temple? And number two, are you against the law? At the time, the ruling religious class taught that the temple, this large structure, was at the center of Hebrew life. They taught that this temple was essential to your relationship with God. For them, God actually lived in that temple. It was central to worship and one's relationship with God. And they also thought that in order to be a good person, in order to be right with God, you needed to follow the, the, the rules. You needed to follow the Jewish law. If you mess up, you go to the temple, you make a sacrifice, and your conscience is cleared. But you needed to work really hard to follow the rules. In other words, you had to trust in your ability to get with the program. So in the message, and I encourage you to, to read chapter 7, he answers their first two questions. First, are you against the temple? His answer is basically, no, but you're thinking about it all wrong. He draws on Abraham and Joseph and Moses, and his point is that God in all of these accounts and all of Israel's history in the Old Testament, God meets them all outside of the temple. In fact, there is no temple at that time. God said himself he doesn't exclusively live in a structure. He's God. Second, are you against the law? His answer is basically the same. No, but you're thinking about it wrong. He says that the law is good. It's, in, it's unviolable, inviolable, but at, all throughout Israel's history, they've not really followed the law. So it's good, but it's a bad idea to trust in your ability to get with the program. Now, implied in his sermon, and I'm summarizing it, it's, it's quite the chapter, is that because of the coming of Jesus, the temple and the law actually all finally make sense. And this is what drives this religious council quite crazy. Uh, these were things, Stephen says, that God gave in order to help people to understand, to make sense of Jesus Christ. First, the temple and the sacrifices. In order to approach God and to have a right relationship with God, we need atonement, the Bible seems to indicate. We need our sins forgiven. 
to even enter into God's presence. The image was a priest had to make a sacrifice, and he had to go in with that sacrifice in order to make atonement. But Stephen says that in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect high priest who's made atonement for us once and for all. Through Jesus' blood, we can enter the Holy of Holies, so to speak, and have access to God at any time. Our sins have been forgiven as far as the east is from the west. He is the temple, the high priest, the mediator, our atonement, the death we should have died. Jesus died in our place. Second, the law implied in this sermon that Stephen gives. The law, at least in part, reveals that nobody's perfect. But it also requires us to be good, to be perfect, in order to be right with God. But the problem is, is we can't fully do that, can we? Uh, the council may be following in this passage, they may have been following some of the external laws around others, but their hearts were still filled with fear and pride and cruelty. But in Jesus Christ, Stephen says we have one who is the righteous one. He's the one who obeyed God in every step. No one spoke like Jesus. No one taught like Jesus. No one loved like Jesus. And no one was righteous like Jesus. But through faith in Christ, God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And those of us who know him, who've trusted him, he places that righteousness on us. And he takes our sins and he places our sins on Jesus Christ. Thus, he's our example, Stephen says. He's the only one who's ever loved God with his whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. The life we lived, Stephen would say, is the life that Jesus lived for us. Now, Stephen knew this message well. He knew Jesus, and he could talk about him from the scriptures. He was an ordinary guy, but he was ready to talk about the gospel from the Bible at any time. If you're in Christ this morning, if you know him, and you've ever wondered how can you speak more naturally about God and faith, we want to encourage you. Get to know the Bible more. Get to know the God of the Bible more. Make a plan. Read it. Ask questions. Uh, don't just do a sensational Christianity. Do a real one. I love what one pastor said. The scriptures were not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. God uses ordinary people doing ordinary things with Christ-centered intentionality to change the world. The text continues, and we see the fourth moment, his death. Stephen continues, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, verse 51, you always resist the Holy Spirit, verse 53, the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So here, Stephen becomes the first Christian to die for his faith. And his face was like an angel. Maybe he was afraid, maybe he felt panic. But in this moment, he's deeply filled with faith. He's deeply filled with love and forgiveness, just like Jesus was when facing death. Now, notice just a few things here. Number one, Jesus standing, and number two, Stephen's prayers. First, by the the power of God's spirit, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Said another way, the spirit of God living in him creates this kind of deep impression in his heart to see this picture. And in this picture, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, in the Bible, the the right hand of God is the throne room of God, so to speak. And because it's the throne room of God, it's the heavenly courtroom of God. Now, here, we we in America, we have the separation of, of powers. But we have to remember that for most of history, the throne room has been the courtroom. And the courtroom has been the throne room. There were no separation of powers, so to speak. But also here in the Bible, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. He, well, we should say that he's rather seated usually in the Bible. When you read through the pages of the Bible, you see Jesus in every occasion after he makes atonement for sins, after he rises again, after he, he ascends, he's seated at the right hand of God, meaning that the work of salvation is completed that it is finished, that it's done. But here, this is the only time where we find Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen has this vision of the heavenly courtroom of God, and he sees Jesus standing. And the only reason one would be standing in a courtroom is that they would be talking. They would be arguing their point. They'd be making an appeal. There would be, they would be being an advocate. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this vision. One commentator said it well, while Stephen was confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. This is an amazing truth. Because in that moment, Stephen is seeing visually to his heart what he's been speaking about and teaching about and preaching about principally. And that is when we believe in Jesus, when we trust in Christ, our hearts are united to him. Our sins are placed on him. They're paid in full. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the right standing that we all need, is given to us through Jesus Christ. So that when God the Father on the throne looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, the perfect merits of of his son alone. And in that moment, Christ is making that known symbolically to Stephen. It's a picture of the gospel to Stephen, a visual reminder of the most important truth ever. In other words, in that moment, Stephen was in this earthly courtroom, and they were condemning him, but simultaneously he knew so deeply in his heart in that moment and in his mind that the only courtroom that matters 
was commending him. As he was in that earthly courtroom that was condemning him, he saw the heavenly courtroom commending him. No one was speaking up for him on earth, but he saw Jesus speaking so powerfully for him in heaven, and that's all that mattered. Now notice, again, this is another message. This is how we can face the deepest pain in our lives. When the Spirit makes real to us how much we're loved by God, how much we're honored in God, how much we're loved and forgiven in Jesus Christ, we can face anything this life throws at us. Secondly, notice his prayers, verse 59. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He prays the same prayers, essentially, that Jesus prayed upon death. He asked God to receive him, and he asked the Lord to not hold their sins against them. It's an amazing act of forgiveness and grace. Stephen's an ordinary guy, but he was transformed through faith in Jesus. The gospel was so deep into his heart. The truth of Jesus was so rich in his life that he was willing to die so others might live. And this is what Christianity is really all about. It's being willing to die daily, to pick up our cross and follow him. Now, for some of us, that may mean letting people know that we're a Christian. For others, it may mean explaining our faith more thoroughly to a colleague. There may be some death there. Maybe we won't get invited to a party. Maybe we'll be skipped over a, in a job promotion. Maybe some people will avoid us. But the principle is, if others can live, and that means some death for us, let's do it. Which is exactly what Stephen's death leads to, verse 1 of chapter 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So notice, Stephen's death causes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ordinary Christians to have to flee the city. But in that inconvenience, in those little mini deaths, all of them are picking up the pieces of their lives, they're picking up their cross and following Christ, and they're speaking the truth about Christ wherever they go. This is going to lead to the Christian faith multiplying in Asia, in Africa, in Europe, and we'll see that as the book of Acts continues. But particularly here as we close, notice that Stephen's death is particularly going to change the world in a powerful way. Throughout these chapters, we've heard of this guy, this young guy named Saul. He was a member of that religious council that cast his vote, ultimately against Stephen to die. He was also probably the ringleader of that synagogue earlier in the story that debated with Stephen. He heard Stephen's sermon, and he cast his vote ultimately to kill him. While Saul 
as we'll find out in the weeks to come, becomes Paul. He ends up writing two-thirds of the New Testament. He develops Stephen's theology and his message, and a lot of what Paul writes in the pages of the New Testament were greatly influenced by Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, a sermon he once truly hated. He's the greatest missionary, Paul. He'll go on to be the greatest missionary who ever lives, and Jesus will literally use Paul to change the world. But it all started with this guy, Stephen, an ordinary guy doing ordinary things with Christ-centered intentionality. You don't have to be an apostle, can't be an apostle. You don't have to be, an, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary to change the world. All you have to do is follow Christ, to trust him, to believe Give yourself to him. The courtrooms of this world ultimately don't matter. The only courtroom is his. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.